reminder of how hard a human heart can be and how obstinate that we can be in our refusal to acknowledge our Creator. So needless to say, there's more judgment to come in Revelation. In this book that we're studying, it's not over yet. All things will be consummated in Christ. And so that's what we see unfolding. It's what we see unfolding uh, in our lives today. So having looked at the sixth trumpet blast, do we get to see the seventh trumpet blast today? Uh, Do we get to hear about the next woe that the angel pronounced? Not yet. Because here again we have another, um, for lack of better terms, an interlude. And when John wrote about the seven seals, we got... We, uh, I think we got to seal five or six, and then rather than getting to the end, yeah, seal six, rather than getting to the end, he shifted his focus to what's going on in another place, and that is with the people of God. So it wasn't the wrath on the earth, but it was the saints of God, the 144,000 and the multitude of saints that were pra- praising and glorifying God in the heavens. So we have an interlude here. This is part of an interlude, chapter 10. We'll look at an angel, we'll look at this little scroll, and then in chapter 12, John will explain to us his vision of the two witnesses that Jesus plants on the earth. So we'll learn about that. But an interlude doesn't mean that uh, the Lord um, pauses the wrath and the other things that are going on in the world, and then just focuses on the saints in heaven or the saints on earth. All of this is happening Concurrently, uh, God can multitask where we may not be able to do. So this passage is about uh, an, an angel, if you can believe it. It's hard to read through a chapter of Revelation without being confronted with God's work with angels. And about a scroll. Now we spent several chapters looking at a scroll with seven seals, but this isn't a big, powerful, legal document The whole world hangs on what's in those words. This is a little scroll. So what kind of role does this mighty angel and this little scroll play in the consummation of all things in Christ? Well, let's find out as we read chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the Red Sea and on the land, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, 
just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So we see first, the, I want to look at two things. And the two, only two things in this passage, the mighty angel and then the little scroll. So first we see the mighty angel. Uh, heaven is filled with angels in John's vision. And this is a mighty angel. There are angels of different capacities and different strengths. And they're created for different purposes. And this mighty angel has, along with his might, a mighty voice. Uh, he's got a set of lungs, if you will. Everything in, is loud in Revelation. Um, one of these days, when I'm not up here and think about it, but when I'm in my study, I need to see how many times that word is used in the book of Revelation. It's like everything that happens, because it's, it's meant to get our attention. The mildness is over when it comes to the wrath of God. People have been given a chance. They've been given opportunity, plenty of warning, and now God comes with, with loudness and might and called out this angel. He called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. So he had a roar to his voice, if you will. Now, if you are in a jungle and you hear a roar, what effect will that have on you? You don't want to hear a roar when you're in the jungle unless you're like really, really well protected. But the idea is it's intimidating because it communicates power and it it creates a fear and a respect there. And that's the idea with this loudness, this this prominence, the presence of the angel. I have to admit, as a C.S. Lewis fan, it's hard for me to talk about roaring lions without mentioning the Christ figure, Aslan. In the Lion and the Witch in the, in the Wardrobe. And so I want to just read a little quote out of that book. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The idea is that Aslan is such a powerful creature that every, his every move, everything he does, even the shaking of a mane, affects the flourishing of the world and creation and mankind. It's in a very appropriate metaphor for Christ. Everything Christ thinks, does, and says affects creation and mankind for its goodness and flourishing. So this angel's appearance is extremely mighty, Uh, so mighty, in fact, that some wonder, is this Christ? Is this a vision of Christ that John is seeing? After all, there are some um, correlations 
Here he's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. Um, when God descended on Mount Sion, we, he descended in, in a uh, smoke. And Jesus the Mount, uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, there was smoke, there was a cloud there. He was enveloped in a, a cloud. And Revelation says, behold, he's coming in the clouds. We also read in Revelations 4.3 about um, around the very throne of God, there were the colors of the rainbow there. And in Exodus, God led his people as a pillar uh, of fire by night and a cloud by day. So you have a correlation there. But it falls short. It falls short. It is not Christ, a vision of Christ. It falls short for a few reasons. One is that when it comes to symbolism, particularly in, in Revelation, it doesn't always mean the same thing. So if you talk about a rainbow in Christ and a rainbow in the angel, it doesn't mean it's the same thing. For instance, you see uh, Jesus as described as the Lion of Judah, but you also see uh, Satan recognized as one who, who roams like a roaring lion. So it's, just, it's a metaphor used for two different things people to different beings and aspects and that's what we have here as well and secondly the angel in um, verse 6 he swears by him who lives forever and obviously that's a reference to Christ he's already been identified as the one who lives forever so this angel is answering to God he's answering to the, the triune God so it's not Christ and then I would say last but not least this angel doesn't have that mighty scroll. You know, only Christ was worthy to open the scroll with the seven seals. This is a little scroll and it's already open, last and least. So what we do have, I would say, is we have a mighty angel. And he is radiant because he's been in the presence of God. He's been commissioned by God. He's been empowered by God to fulfill God's commands, and he has the overspray, if you will, of the radiance and the glory and the glory that often takes place when one is in the presence of God. And this is most certainly a good angel, not the creepy, vulgar, stinky angels, evil angels, and fallen angels that we read about in chapter 9. And he is a long-legged angel, right? Can you imagine what size shoe he wears? He has one leg. He's straddling the earth, in essence. And that's what it means with one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea. He covers the whole thing. It's, it's a completeness there. His announcement, what he has to say, goes out to all the earth. And it may be even more than that when we consider this picture of an angel with one foot on the land and one foot in the sea. I want to just take a, a few minutes, if you will, because we, I've mentioned this before. Satan is an imposter. Satan is a fallen angel, but he, he sins, he's prideful, but he sins in that he wants to be God. He wants to be something that he's not. And therefore, he, he imitates God in ways. Now, for instance... He is an angel of light. Uh, he presents himself as an angel of light, though he is quite dark. We, we sometimes um, picture Satan as a vile, 
red-suited, pointy-tailed, horned creature. But he would not be that obvious uh, to us. He is the deceiver. He wants to confuse us. He wants us to think things that aren't true about him and everything else in our lives. In chapters 12 and 13, this will become very, very clear, but it's worth uh, announcing it, I guess, beforehand so it will be even clearer as we come upon it. But we're going to find that Satan has his own uh, counterfeit form of the Holy Trinity. There's a false god that's identified as Satan, the dragon. And then you also have a beast. You have a beast with one uh, foot on the sea and then a a beast with one foot on the land. It's starting to sound familiar. And they're identified, one of them is the Antichrist and one of them is a false prophet. So in essence, you have a false god, Satan, you have a false Christ, the Antichrist, and you have false prophet or witnesses of God. And this is, this is um, Satan's technique. This is how he s- deceives. We will also see how important it is for him to accumulate worship because he's going to perform a powerful feats that cause people to bow down. And some of those feats will be imitations of the accomplishments of Christ, but I won't. I'll save that for, for later. So if you, if you take that into consideration, the correlation between the angels and what God's doing and what Satan's doing, it's as if God is saying, I, I know what the beast is up to. I know what the dragons are up to. And I'm already on it. I'm already taking care of these things. I'm above it. All of that is beneath me. I have my angel who covers the earth. I'm the beginning and the end, this is no, whatever you might see, whatever might be prophesied is no threat to my plan. It's a part of my plan. And all of these things that will, will arise as imitations are only carrying out my plan as my servants. And I think this is powerful. This is important because often... Satan, yes, is absolutely powerful. Evil is something to be avoided. It's, it's something to run away from. It's real. It's something to be feared. But it's all beneath God. Like it's all under God. That's why our time of worship and the declarations that we made about the, the uh, atonement of Christ and who we are in Christ are so powerful because they are true. They are absolutely True. In the New Testament, we see examples of Jesus casting out or exercising demons. You don't see the opposite. You see a God that has complete authority over even the evil, the creatures and the evil that takes place. It's another reminder. And we're constantly inundated with this in, in, the, in the media today that we do not live in a dualistic world where there are two equal powers constantly fighting back and forth and one day this one's on the top and the next day this one has the advantage and so forth. We live in a, in a universe that is under the authority, the power, and the might of one God, the triune God that has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. 
And so he is the authority. He is the power. And anything, any power, any ability that any creature has is he only has it because God has granted that to them. We, that's part of God's design and creation. So all of these things that we see, it's only because God has granted it. If everything is beneath the sovereign rule of God. It's given, power is given, and power is managed by the sovereign God. Now we may use it for evil. Uh, we might use our power to slander God. We might use it to lie about God or curse God or defy God with sinful acts. If you really want to get God back right, you just defiantly sin in his face, so to speak. Or if we want to throw something at God or shake our fists at God, we only are able to do that because he's given us the power to do that. So all of this as we read the, the great feats that will take place, keep in mind that our rebellion and sin, obviously, it grieves him. But there's no power on earth and creation that poses God any kind of threat. Why is this important? Because we want to make, always make sure that we fear the right thing in the right way. The evil is to be feared in a different way. as something to be avoided. God is to be feared as the one and only true God that possesses all power and everything is beneath him and we are only truly safe when we are in his presence. Every rock thrown at God has been given by God and will be used to reveal how amazing God is at giving and receiving rocks, so to speak. Every force of evil that God grants in the end will be used only to reveal how amazing God is at redeeming the undeserved and judging evil. It's all just a part of his plan, and God will come out on top, and God will come out uh, with a manifestation, manifestation of glory such as we have never seen. Just as the bloody cross led to the empty tomb, God has a plan for the things that take place. In this world. When he called out, verse 3, the seven thunders sounded. Now, whenever you have a, usually thunder in Scripture, it has to do either with judgment and the fierce presence of God, one or the other, or both. And that's the idea here. It, it thunder talks, so to speak. And um, John hears another voice from heaven. Doesn't identify the voice. Perhaps it is assuming. I'm assuming it's the voice of God. But it's not the mighty angel's voice. And he says, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So in symbolic revelation, thunder can talk. Here. But whatever was spoken is not to be revealed. So in the book of the Revelation, which is revealing things, there are things that, at least in this passage, that are not to be revealed. So what does all this mean? Daniel 12, 8 through 9, I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel. 
for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And we find in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. There are things that God reveals, and he's so generous and gracious to reveal. All that we need pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything we need to know. But there are things that God does not reveal. Uh, we don't need to know these things. They, are, they remain secret. But we're accountable to everything that God has revealed. There are things in Scripture, and there are times when God gives prophets uh, little visions or, or messages or inklings. They see things, and they don't understand them, and God says they're not for you to understand. It's not time to reveal this. And there are other times where the re- revelation is plentiful. So things remain a mystery in God's kingdom. We don't get to know it all. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul. We went through the book of 2 Corinthians. And Paul, what an experience he had with Christ. And not only was he used to perform miracles, but he had this experience of being taken up into the heavens. And he, it was so powerful and mysterious that he wasn't sure if he was actually there in body form or if he was still on the earth just imagining this. Whatever it was, it was a powerful experience. And yet we're told that he heard these things that cannot be told and which man may not utter. So they may be so uh, wholly other that you can't even, you don't have human language to put them in. Or simply, it may be that they are explainable, but they're sealed off. The knowledge of God, in that sense, is sealed off. And yet, the Apostle Paul, when it comes to the knowledge of God that God wants revealed, particularly the gospel, God revealed the gospel to the Apostle Paul in ways like no other apostle. He looks at the gospel from so many different angles and explains it in so many different ways. And so the thing, some things are sealed and we don't get to know it, but other things are just poured forth tremendously. I think it's, um, as I think about 2 Corinthians, and we think about things that are sealed off and prophecies and the secret things of God, we still deal with those things in our Christian world, right? We hear about prophecies, we hear about secrets and how we might get these secret messages or the blessings from the Lord. There are different varieties and marketing programs and things out there. But I think about the Apostle Paul and all of his experience. And I remember in 2 Corinthians that he spent a lot of holy scripture, royal treasure, on on, uh, explaining why he was um, so cautious to tell about his experiences because he didn't want to boast in any way. So he's left with this terrible problem. Man, gosh, God was so powerful in my life. I overcame so many things, but how do I even share this without drawing attention to myself? And so he would spend verse after verse prefacing what he's about to say is that I want Christ exalted. This is not about me. It's all about Christ. But I'm going to tell you this because I think that if I can remain humble, that Christ will be exalted through these testimonies that I share with you. But he's so reticent to not get the credit and and to not exalt God. And yet, look what God did in him. He knew things. 
I mean, God inspired him and re- revealed things to him that he was to proclaim to others, but he knew these things, and he was so humble. And I, and I compare that kind of character and that demeanor with some of the things that we see in servants of God today, where you have people that have prophecies and secrets of God, and they will be glad to share them with you and tell you their story if you invite them on your show to interview them, if you buy the book, if you go to the conference and these kind of things. And it's, and it's used to exalt and bring attention to the self instead of being very cautious to, to make sure that all the special revelation, any experience that God does in our life is only to bring him glory and not to ourselves. And unfortunately, we, we see the opposite there. There's just a big difference in, in using what God gives us to exalt self versus exalting God. So even in the book of Revelation, some things are not revealed. I think about things not revealed. What did Jesus scratch in the dirt when the Pharisees brought the adulterous woman to him? I know. And I got a book that will tell you (laughs) Nobody knows, but wouldn't you love to know what had the effect? There's all kinds of speculation. Could have been this, could have been that, maybe. But there are things that we just do not know because they were not meant to know. So John's told to seal this up. Don't even write it. That's what we know. We, we just know that we're not supposed to know. But the thunder suggested it has something to do with judgment. Maybe it's something so fierce that God doesn't want us to know for our own good. I do not know. So we have the mighty angel, but then we have the little scroll. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And later we'll read John's told to eat it. He's told to eat and he's told to prophesy about the peoples and the nations of all the languages and the kings. And one of the big questions that you read this, you think, well, is the, the scroll what he's supposed to prophesy or is this a whole other message in and of itself? And we just don't know. It doesn't change anything, but we just do not know for sure. It's not clear. But here's what we do know. Verse 7, but in those days, the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So not just revealed, but accomplished. Not just revealed, but fulfilled. This mystery. What is a mystery? It's a mystery to me, Miss Daisy, right? So in our, um, in our culture, we often look at a mystery as something that can't, it has to be solved because we don't know it yet. But mystery in Scripture, God already knows it. It's already there. It just hasn't been disclosed yet. It's more like a, a rolling back of the curtain, if you will. Behind it is the screen. It's already there. And so the mystery will be revealed as the scroll is rolled back or the pages are turned, however you want to look at it, as God chooses. It will be revealed as is already planned from all along. So John is told to eat this scroll. I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take it and eat it. 
It'll make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And so I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. John would be familiar with this as a scholar of the scriptures. He would have read something that, like this before that we find in Ezekiel chapter 2. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were some written words on it of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat and he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So there, there are these, these metaphors in scripture where God gives messages and, and not just surface things, but things that the prophets are to, to get down deep, to ingest, if you will. And God's word has a different effect. You might say the soul has taste buds, uh, depending on the message that God is revealing or, or giving. There's a sweetness to God's word. We read about it time and time Again, in Scripture, Psalm 119, 103, he says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So you, you have this vision, uh, this idea of when the prophet's they receive God's word and they take God's word in. They begin to ingest it and it has this inward effect on their bodies. Their hearts and their souls take delight in it. It's, it's a sweetness. It's a good taste. It's, it's, everything feels right and good about it to them. You, know, you, you can't get enough. It's, it's delight after delight. Good news after good news. Characteristic of God. It's the knowledge of God and how the world works. And you want these kind of things. And that's the effect it has on us, does it not? Sometimes we come to it and we read it and we're just, we're astounded. We're at all at who God is, how much he loves us, how merciful he is, that he has our, our days all planned out. He has creation all planned out, the beginning and the end. And it's an intricate web of incredible planning and drama and love and blood and tears and all of this. And we, we just soak it in. And when you read yourself in scripture, I remember the day after I got saved late at night and the next day, uh, I've said this many times, I was in a tree stand supposed to be Deer hunting, first day of deer season in Maryland. As soon as it got light, I took out the Gideon's pocket New Testament and I was reading the Gospel of John and, and God was speaking to me in that tree stand. I could not believe the Word of God and how clear it was to me all of a sudden. And so it has this sweetness to it and we just can't get enough of it because it's so wonderful to us. We want to hear more and more of God in the presence of God's people and the presence of the community 
And we want to go away. When we come here on Sundays, we, we have Sunday school and we have our worship service. And we want to go away having been filled, at least with some sweet things about God. Be ministered to by the Spirit of God. And I know that that takes place. And we know that God's Word teaches us and instructs us. It rebukes us and trains us, but it calms us. It edifies us. I mean, even just the worship songs, the lyrics in the worship songs, I was greatly edified just in that part of the service because of the truth there. It's a sweetness to my soul. But the scripture has another hand or another side to it as well that we learn from these prophets. It's not all just sweetness. There are things about God's word and God's revelation that when we really take them in and we really ingest them, they also affect us and they make us sick. And these prophets are saying, this is hurting my belly. This is just making me, I don't feel well knowing what you've revealed to me. I don't feel well having to proclaim the news that you've given me. It makes me sick. When I, uh, before I became a Christian, I went to a, um, I had to go to a church. It was part of a deal that I won't get into, but with my brother-in-law, Bob, and he, this was a fire and brimstone church and pastor. And I would go to this church. I was not a believer. I was in darkness. And um, I, I would leave feeling a little sick. And so after two Sundays of that, leaving this place, I'd be like, you know, I don't, what's wrong with me? But I don't feel well and he just got this grin on his face and he said yeah you're sick that's called conviction of the holy spirit because i had been under the word of god and under this strong preaching about sin and i didn't know what was going on but it, but as soon as he said that i was like man exactly what it is I am starting to feel sick over my sin. I did not like it. It's a terrible feeling. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? He illuminates God's word. He applies what God has said. He was applying it to my sick heart. And the Holy Spirit will often tell us things that, that other people won't tell us. And the Holy Spirit will be the one that will come and say, uh, now he doesn't make us sick. But he reveals to us why we already are sick. And he's, he will come to us and say, you know, you got a deadly disease. It's called sin. And you have an opportunity to make peace with God. Or you will feel the wrath and the judgment of God if you do not make peace with God because you are already sick. You already have the disease of offending your maker and rebelling against him. So the Holy Spirit... Um, he prepares us to, to meet God either in a way that we've made peace through the blood of Christ or in a way where we will face his wrath because um, we rejected the kind olive branch or olive leaf of peace from Christ through the gospel. But you know when you are a student of Scripture, and you don't just keep it out on the surface, but you want to press in and know God, that you find things in there that disturb you. And they come in there and they judge you and they point things out in your heart and your mind, not just your deeds, but your th thinking. 
and they call it what it is, you're guilty. That's not a good feeling. That's, that's hard word. The cause was you're a prideful person. You're a self-indulgent person. It reveals things that are growing in me. One sin, two sin, red sin, blue sin. When I was uh, preparing this, I was looking at Dr. Zeus and I thought, I'll tie that in. Old sin, new sin. But the Holy Spirit, that's not a Dr. Zeus book, but I modified it. But the Holy Spirit reveals these kind of things in our hearts. And it's painful. Sometimes it brings us to tears. That's when you bring it in deep and you let it do its work. Christianity, is it can't always be a good feeling like we're often taught. Oh, come to Christ and you just have the best feeling forever in the world. If you do, then you're probably not a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, there are going to be times where you are so delighted, you, you, you feel otherworldly, like you can't even, you're undeserving, you can't believe how incredible God is and what he's doing for you. And there's other times where you will be at the bottom and you see your sin. Uh, I think of Isaiah's experience when he was confronted with the presence of the Lord. In the temple, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts in six um, the first five verses, he's confronted with the presence of God and then he winds up saying, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. All of a sudden he is, doesn't feel very good about himself. You know, the positive thinking thing didn't work in the presence of God that day. And he says, woe is me. I mean, what am I going to do? What am I, I'm in the presence of a holy God. What hope do I have? How can I, what do, what do I do with myself? How can I escape this? You have to be trans." Formed as we take God's scroll all the way in. When you take God's scroll all the way in, what do you get? You get God. And you get God's truth. And what does God's truth want to do? It wants to change us. It wants to transform us. That's the power of it. It doesn't want us to be the same. And so it has to, it has to shift and move and do some remodeling and construction in our hearts. I recently read where um, actor uh, Jim Caviezel, I think you pronounce his name, in The Passion of Christ in, an, in another recent movie. He was being interviewed, actually, from this recent movie uh, about freedom, something, Sound of Freedom, maybe. I have not seen it yet. It's supposed to be very powerful. But he just made this simple, this simple comment. He said, how God sees you is what you truly are. How God sees you is what you truly are. You know, John Calvin would say, you can't even know yourself if you don't know God. You have to know God to even really know yourself. Now, that's true. And I, and I, and I think it's becoming evident. In our culture, we don't know ourselves anymore. We don't know who we are anymore. We don't know what gender we are anymore. And I think it's, it, a lot of that has to do with demonic activity in the lives of the enemy when we detach ourselves from our identity in, in God, who is our creator, then who are we, what are we? We're nothing. You can't be both. And so we have, sadly, we have people so confused today that in order to find their true self, they think they have to change their gender. But if you're changing your gender, if gender is so fluid that it can just be changed back and forth, then there is no true self, right? Right? 
Because how can you find a true self if you can change it again? It's not reliable. It's not constant. You just see Satan behind this. It's, it's, it's this deceptive lie where follow this train of thought and it'll get you what you want. And it gets you destruction. Further angst. It won't help with the true problem underneath, which is a lack of humility to agree with the truth that God has immersed us in in this world. But God is gracious and he's willing to give us the truth. And sometimes that includes hard truth. And so I close it with this. The reason, one of the reasons that it's bitter in the stomach is because when God gives us truth, well, when God gives prophets truth, not only is it hard maybe for them to swallow, but they got to tell it to others. They got to they talk about God's wrath and God's judgment and, and sin to others. And that's hard to do too. And as servants of God, as disciples of God in this day and age, we're commanded to do the same thing. We have God's word. He's revealed it to us and we're commanded to share it with others. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. And that's not easy, is it? It's very awkward sometimes. And it doesn't mean we do, we, we preach God's wrath with, you know, a red face and, and, and veins popping out. It could be we're talking to people about it in tears because we're torn up about it. But we are to proclaim it and it's very, very hard and we might, we might be reticent and reluctant because it makes us feel sick. But it's a reality and it's a truth. And God tells John, you need to preach this to the nations and the people and all the languages and to the kings. They need to hear it. We've been given that task as well to those that are within our sphere to tell it like it is. Speak the truth in love. So I guess my encouragement in in this as we close is to value God and his word and be willing to take it in and take it in deep and enjoy the sweetness of it. But also understand that the sickness, the part, and the wrath, that's real true. That's real too. That's true too. And that plays a part in transforming us and making us more and more like Christ. May God bless the preaching of his word.